Well, you can turn with me to Psalm 12. I think it's on page 452 in the Pew Bible. I looked that up earlier, but I have memory issues. Uh, my memory doesn't last that long. I apologize for that, um, but I believe that's the page it's on. But nonetheless, um, you're intelligent people. Is it f- you're intelligent people. You'll figure it out. You can, uh, you can follow along. So nonetheless, this is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, it's a musical term, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say with, with our great tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Verse five, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, our Savior. We come in the name of our Lord. And Lord, for many of us, we come and this psalm is our experience. Don't put a lot of weight in experience, Lord, in feeling, but this is the life that many of us seem to live. Where it it, it seems to us that the faithful are gone. And we cry out, save, Lord. And everywhere, on every page of your word, of the scriptures which you have given us, you declare to us your promise that you, you will, you have, and you are arising and saving, and restoring, redeeming, and putting all things back together for your glory. And you're calling your people to trust you, to not listen to the words of others, but to place their hope in your word, which is true forever. May we, your people, by a work of your spirit, by the power of your gospel, trust in your word and in your word alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Really, this is a straightforward, simple psalm that David, we don't really have a context for it other than the context that he gives us, right? It's a beautiful song or or, or poem or prayer, however you want to categorize it. Right, it's, it's really easy when you look at it to just understand what, what our author is, is giving us here. Right? He's looking at a context just of, of utter desolation and, and understanding that 
the, the, the context that he's writing in is one where, where on every side it seems like there's no hope. And yet, he still cries out. So what, what I want to do is just take it, just take the phrases, right? No clever statements from Jordan. Jordan has no clever statements, right? <laughs> right? Let's just, this is, a, this is a psalm about words, right? True words and false words. And so rather than, rather than put my words in here, we're just going to look at the words of the psalm and see what God has to say about himself and about the trustworthiness of who he is. The, the psalmist starts off with this phrase, right? Save, O Lord, right? Now normally, when we see that word save, it's followed by an object. Save me, save us, save Israel, save your people. But here, David just gives us this save, right? Yish, yish, Lord, save. Save, O Lord. Right? And, and it's, it's just this, this blanket statement. Do what you do, Yahweh. Safe. Right? And it's an interesting construction because that word save right, in, its, in its root is yish. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's very close. If you look at the name Yahshua or Yeshua, right? It, it, these two words next to each other, save, O Lord, are these two words, Yahshua, right? Like they're, they're very close to the name Jesus, right? Save, Lord. Like we need you, right? He's going to describe a situation. He's going to describe a desolate situation. And into that, there is only one answer. And it is for the Lord God, the one true God, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one and only one who can redeem things for his glory and restore things back to himself to do what only he can do, and that is to save, to rescue, to deliver, right? And he is imploring the Lord God to save, to deliver. Oh Lord, deliver, 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 right? And again, there's no object here. It's not deliver me, right? The Psalm we looked at last week was very personal. Other Psalms we've looked at, you see David in a, in a situation and it's like deliver me or deliver your people. But here, he's just talking like the Lord, just deliver. And we're going to see when we get to verse 5 that the Lord, he says, I, I see the plight of the people. Almost like what you see in, in the first chapter of the book of Exodus when God looks down and he sees the plight of his people, right? And he hears their cries and he says, I will deliver. I will send a redeemer. I will arise. Because that's what God does. Right? It's not we who deliver, right? And that is our propensity as people, right? We're problem solvers, right? In our culture, that's what we do. We, we solve problems. We fix things, right? And we think, we look at a situation and we think, well, we'll fix this. We will deliver ourselves. But we have no capacity. 
within ourselves to deliver ourselves from ourselves, from the sinfulness with which we are oppressed, from the sinfulness with which we are oppressing others, from the sinfulness with which we have been enslaved. We have no capacity to deliver ourselves, but we buy that lie. We're gonna look at that in a second. There is only one solution, and that is the Lord God. That's it. We look to many other things, but there is only one. And from Genesis chapter one, right, through Revelation 22, there is one answer. Lord, save. Save, Lord. Deliver, Lord. Rescue, Lord. And there is one response from the Lord to that cry, I will arise. I have arisen and I am arising and I am delivering and I am rescuing my people. David then describes this situation that we see here, right? In verse one, he uses language that is, um, you might say it, it seems overstated. I don't know. I don't think it is, but I'm one who overstates just about everything I say. For the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Right? This is a statement, right? The godly one is gone. There is no one who represents the Lord God anymore. And from among the children of men, from among the sons of Adam, right? Everywhere on the face of the earth. Now, I don't think David had gone everywhere on the face of the earth, but nonetheless, he makes the statement. From among the children of men, the faithful have vanished. Now, again, that may be an overstatement, right? I think of Elijah as he prays in the cave and says, Lord, I'm the only one left. And God says, you're not the only one left. I've got, I've got all these people over here who haven't yet bent the knee. But, but for so many of us that, that, that and again, I, 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 I shudder to use this word, but that, that feels like our experience, right? Maybe, maybe in, in, in your context, right? We, we live in a context together, but then each of us make, we, we live these lives where we go to work or we go to school or we live in a neighborhood or an apartment complex that, that then is our, uh, a personal context. And in your context, right, maybe, Maybe there's this experience that you have where there's isolation, where you, where you feel like, I'm all alone here. Maybe in your high school, you feel like there is no one who bears the name of Jesus here. Or in your college, or in your workplace, that you are the only one. And in an ever-increasing manner, as, as we live in this place, in this in this. In this, you know, this great country, I have the privilege to travel all around the world, and this is a great place to live. But 
in the days ahead, it's gonna feel like more and more, like we are alone. And I go to some great, great places and I talk to, 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 to the people of God and they say, we're alone here. We're alone here. And they're not, but they feel like they're alone. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Now, normally the podcasts I listen to are funny, right? And therefore, probably not Christian podcasts. But nonetheless, I was listening to Al Mohler the other day. He's normally not in my playlist, but he's short. And so I was listening to him the other day and figured I needed a little conversation with Levi or Bernie because that's who they listen to. And so I was listening to him the other day while I was getting ready for my day. And he was talking about the Anglican church in Canada. And my ears perked up because I went to graduate school in Canada. And... Um, and as he, was, as he was talking about it, the, there's a study that the Anglican Church in Canada has recently done that says that within 20 years, right, they, they, they've done a study that within 20 years, there will be no one left. And I remember when I, when I entered into to, to graduate school at Regent College in, in, in Vancouver all right, almost 25 years ago. Almost 25 years ago. You were 10. I worked with young men who are great men, but young men, right? Almost 25 years ago, right? This issue came up with these men that I studied under, right? I went to this multi-denominational school, so you had dudes who were, were charismatic, and you had dudes who were Baptist, and you had dudes who were Anglican, and these godly men in the Anglican church who, who said, we, we're, we're trying to figure out what we do to be salt and light in our denomination, which is rapidly becoming liberal and running away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men like Jim Packer and Jim Houston and Charles Rigma, godly men, trying to figure out what do we do? And here we are now 25 years removed from that. And the faithful are gone to the point where that denomination has concluded that within 20 years, there will be no one left. Because rather than, rather than trusting in the salvific work and the holiness of and the truthfulness of God, they sought after the needs of men and the desires of men. And they began to listen to the words of men. And they allowed a God to be created in their own image and they chased after that. And that's what David is going to begin to talk to us about here. Though the godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished among the children of earth. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Right? So this psalm is ultimately about words. It compares the words of men versus the words of God. The words we speak to one another, the words that we place our hope in, the words that we tell one another that you can trust, right? I, th I look at my own kids and, and, I, and I see the, the things that a, a society and a culture tells them that they can trust and that are true. And I think, where the heck did you learn that? And why would you believe it? And it's all around them. And every influence outside of this 
And this is telling them to trust just crap and garbage. And it's crushing in. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. And with flattering lips, right? You're great. On your own, you're great. You can do anything. You're awesome. Everything is awesome. Like if you had to sit through the Lego movie, I, I think that's the last kid movie I ever went to, and I'll never go to another one. And I had to listen to that song. Oh, my gosh. With flattering lips and a double heart. They don't really mean it. Nobody really means that you're awesome. They're just trying to get something from you. Oh, don't you look good in that car. Sorry, Luke. Don't you look good in that car. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Don't you look good in that car. Not really. I just want you to buy it. Right? You were made for that house. I know you can't afford it, but you, ooh, 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 ooh. Flattering lips and a double heart they speak. David's cry here, right? Everyone utters these things, right? May the Lord cut them off. And as, as I read this, the thing that I'm reminded of is Genesis 3, right? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Because this is the root, this is the introduction of our problem. God has spoken, but someone else speaks. God has given us His Word. He's given us His plan, right? He's, he's, he's revealed Himself to us, right? Right here. Everything I need to know about who God is and what God desires and what God wants to do in the world, God has revealed to me. Now, there is more to him than this, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells me that now I know in part, but then I will know, right? I only know, I know fractions, but I know what I need to know. That which I don't need to know, I don't know. No problem. I'm a simple man. I'm a simple man. There's a lot I don't need to know. A lot of your stuff, I don't want to know. I don't need to know that. I'm not that curious. And there's a lot about God I don't need to know. But what I need to know, He has graciously revealed to me and invited me to trust Him. And in Genesis chapter 3, like, there are people, for, for most of my life, I grew up in the church, for most of my life, Genesis 1 through 3 was kept to felt boards in Sunday school rooms. But I am of the conviction that if the follower of Jesus doesn't understand Genesis 1 through 3, they do not understand the Scriptures. Because it's all there. And the rest of it is an unfolding of what God reveals to these two people. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Right? And oh, by the way, if you don't think that you have a real enemy in the devil who is, although defeated through cross and resurrection, still roaming the earth and more crafty than any other then you're a fool. 
Oh, you don't actually believe that, do you? Yeah, I do. And if you don't, then you're a fool. And that's the first thing you need to repent of today, being a fool. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Huh. So what, what we see is the introduction of sin into the world is through lies, is through the lips, is through words, is through the challenging and the rebuking of the word of God, right? And this continues to this very day, right? The obliteration of the church of Jesus Christ and, 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 and our foundations and our moorings today comes in this very phrase. Did God actually say man, woman? Did God really say that? Yes, he did. Did God actually say that Jesus Christ is the only way? Yes, he did. Did God actually say that sin will separate you from him forever? Yes. Did God actually say that there's a literal hell? Yes. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, hmm. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, touch it, touch it, lest you die. No, I don't even know if she knows what die means. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not go to hell. You will not suffer consequences. God is love. Come on, people. He doesn't care who you love. He doesn't care what you do. He's not even real. So they would have us believe. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. <gasps> I'll be like God. Because really, that's, what, that's what's at the heart of, of, of humanity is to be God, to be worshiped, to be adored, to be loved. So when the woman saw that it was, the tree was good for food, right? There's a sensuality to it. And that it was delightful to the eyes. Again, sensuality. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Right? She took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Right? Reality comes in. And they sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loincloths. And the destruction of naked, no shame, comes in here. Right? And they then begin to, in the midst of the holiness of God as he comes into their presence, they begin to, you know, throw accusations, right? And we see the result of a Genesis 3, 3 1 through 7 worldview enter in, 
It's destruction of what God creates. Right? They're thrown out. It's exploitation. Right? The enemy, he's not speaking truth to these two. They don't become like God. Right? They die. They had unfettered access to God. And now that access is, 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 is broken. They're devastated. And they're oppressed by the weight of their sin. Right? And so that's the situation which David describes. In which he says, Save, O oh God! Because the situation that he's describing says, those who used to represent you, they're gone. And now the poor are oppressed. There is no one who speaks for you anymore. Your words have gone silent. And the only words that are spoken now are words that kill people, that exploit people, that hurt people. And that's what we see today in our culture. Even even in the church that says in an ever-increasing fashion we can change what this book says to make you feel better about yourself. David says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Right? Just turn on any news channel. Right? Turn on any political debate. Who's master over us? We know what's best for everyone. And then God responds in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, right? Because the needy groan, right? Again, this echoes Exodus 1 when God hears his people just crying out in the midst of their oppression and he responds. I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place him, those who are oppressed, those who cry out, those who are being exploited, those who are devastated by the wickedness of others, those who are devastated by their own sin. I will place him in safety, in the safety for which he longs. Right? I will now arise. And then in verse 6 he says, the words of the Lord are pure words. In contrast to these double speak and these flattering words, the words of the Lord, right? All the words of the Lord. Every promise that he has ever declared. Right? Every truth that he has ever uttered. Everything he has ever revealed about himself. These are pure words. Right? These are words that you can trust because they are not meant to exploit you. Now they will exploit sin in you, right? They will, they will leave you bare and exposed. They are pure. Because they are the holiness of God. They are untouched 
from sin. They are pure. He says, like silver refined. Now, they themselves have not been refined because they don't need to be refined. Right? They haven't, they haven't had to go through a process where at one point there were imperfections and impurities within them and they had to go through a refining process. But they are so pure that they are like something that has been refined. Up to seven times. Right? Seven being the number of perfection in the scriptures. Right? This number that is used. Right? Over and over Right? God's words, his promises, his commands, they are trustworthy. Unlike these other words that are bombarding us all the time, right? all you have to do is turn on your phone. All you have to do is turn on the television. All you have to do is have a conversation with anyone. And you're bombarded with words. This word right here is pure. Right? And God's people, right? God's people should wash themselves in it, right? Paul tells husbands, right, to wash their wives in the word, right? That idea of, of bathing, of, of, of speaking the scriptures over, right? This idea that when I come into, when I, when I come into contact with the scriptures, it's as, if I'm, uh, it's as if I'm bathing myself in just truth, right? It's pure. And then you feel like, okay, well now I've been given these commands, I've been given the, the, this, this, this truth, right? Now I'm obligated to it. And, and, and don't misunderstand me, you are. But here's what God understands. He knows who's going to keep his promises. Verse seven, David declares, you, O Lord, will keep them. Right? These things are gonna come to pass and it's not me who's gonna bring this to pass. It's not me who's going to work really, really hard to build the kingdom of God, to establish all that you want on the earth, although that in our American willpower and spirit is what we try to do. It's you who's going to do this. Now, you're going to do it through people? Absolutely. Whatever God's going to do in the world, he's going to do through his people. Absolutely. Right? But it's you who's going to do this. Right? God eventually sends one, right, who is a son of David, who will save and redeem his people, right? Jesus, who accomplishes his will. You will keep them. You will guard us, right? God is the one who, who arises. God is the one who keeps. God is the one who guards. God is the one who faithfully brings to pass all that he has promised. He is the one who restores all things to himself, right? He uses people in that process. God wants to use every single one of his people in that process. If you are here today, if you can hear my voice, and I know that my voice is loud and obnoxious, but if you can hear my voice today and you are among the people of God, God longs to use you in his redemptive plan. You are important to what God wants to do. But God is gonna accomplish it 
His chosen vehicle is his people. There's no doubt about it. That's why over and 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 over through the scriptures, God uses people. It's not what I would have done. I'm not God. Aren't we all grateful? I would have just said, get out of my way. I'll take care of this myself. But God is so much better than any one of us. He's the one who sustains. He's the one who protects. He's the one who brings this to pass. Right? You notice the primary actor. It's not David. It's not you or I. Again, God works through. But it's God accomplishing. Right? It's God saving. It's God restoring. It's God building. Verse 8, on every side, the wicked prowl. That's the world we live in. On every side. Right? I grew up in the 1980s. Right? The culture that I grew up in said this was a good place. Right? And we looked across the world, right, at, at, at other countries and said, those are bad people. Those are the wicked. We are the good. Right? And we would wave our flag. Just completely blind culturally to the fact that on every side, the wicked prowl. Buying into the lie. They're right here. Right here. The wicked. They prowl. As vileness is exalted. Look look at this. As vileness is exalted among the children of men. Right? So we, the people of God, we have a choice. Right? The words that we entrust ourselves to the one that we entrust to save us, and the words that we will believe. Right? That day, years and years and years and years and years ago, Eve had a choice. Right? She'd heard God speak. Right? She and Adam had heard God speak, had heard God declare. She had a choice. Hmm. And she looked and she saw this, right? and her sensuality went nuts, and she gave in. And you might look at it and be like, man, what a fool. Why were they so foolish? And I know that if she hadn't, I would have. They hadn't, I would have. Or you would have. And we continue to make those mistakes. We continue to sin in this manner. We continue to listen to other voices, to other words. We continue to give weight and stock to other words when only one word matters. Only one truth. There are no other truths. Matters. Right? That there is a God enthroned in the heavens who created all things for his glory. He created the heavens and the earth. He created you and I Right? as his representatives, to be in relationship with him. And that he has restored and is restoring all things through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his son. Right? 
who bore the weight of the wrath of God towards the sin of humanity through the cross and through the resurrection. Right? That is the truth. And that he is redeeming a people to himself for his glory. And that he will return and bring us home. And that is our blessed hope. If you are among the people of God, that is the truth to listen to. And every promise in this book. If you are not yet among the people of God, I encourage you today, place your hope in Jesus and that truth. Right? Cry out, save Lord. Save Lord. Save Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name and we thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you've done and we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you that you have not left us without a picture of who you are, but that you have declared once and for all who you are. And that although the culture around us tries to reframe the conversation about who you are, and although even the, there are many within the church that try to reframe the conversation about who you are, your word gives us clarity about who you are and about what you have done and what you are doing. And so, Lord, we come and submit our lives to you. We surrender to you and we cling to the hope that you are saving us to yourself, redeeming us, delivering us, and using your people to represent you in the world. And Lord, we pray this not just for ourselves, but we pray this for all who bear the name of Jesus, that you would redeem people, save people, restore people. Father, for any in this room right, right now that are struggling to trust you, that are like, like Eve, our first mother, that are, that are looking at the tree and just being tempted sensually and intellectually and idolatrously, Lord, I pray that by a work of your spirit you would bring about repentance and trust and that you would build us and sustain us. And Father, if there are those again who need to trust you for the first time, that today would be the day where they say, yes, Jesus, save me. Restore me. Forgive me of my sin. I repent. And I embrace you as Lord and Savior. Lord, be glorified in your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.